Good morning, Tabernacle. My name is John, and uh, I still work here. It's good to be back. The video reminded me of vacation. I want to especially welcome Manistee, who's living in that part of Michigan that actually has a beach. Uh, we are in uh, continuing our study in the book of Titus, so if you're just joining us or if you're coming back, if you have a Bible or a flat screen and want to turn to Titus chapter 2, that's where we'll be. Before we get there, I just want to say uh, that I'm incredibly grateful for the number of people that I've spoken to, both last night and this morning, and different people from our church that I've seen this week, that have kind of lost their voice, have this thousand-yard stare... Uh, Their knees still hurt from this thing called the mud pit. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about yet, but we sent a huge student crew uh, uh, to Camp 23, and it is a highlight in the life of our church each year. So you'll, you'll hear more about it. I think there'll be like a highlight video next week, but I'm talking about our youth camp that we partnered with a bunch of other churches. We had a packed house. And, and here's just a picture of it, right? So, so our family hustled back from vacation because we had two students uh, that were attending the camp and a college student that was going as an intern. So we had to get back on Sunday night. And then we get them off to their thing on Monday. And then I'm thinking, okay, I'm going to have a week. I'm going to catch up with the staff. The office was empty. We only have two student ministry pastors, but apparently everyone thinks they're on student ministry because they're all up in Gaylord at this camp. And, and here's the reason why. Here's the reason. It's actually a good thing. I'm just playing here, right? Like, I love the fact that they're all there because our church values that. It isn't just like, oh, let's do something cool for the students, you know, to keep them out of trouble. It is a major bedrock foundational moment every year for our church. We put money, time, energy into it. And I just want to say to the students, it isn't like, hey, you had a good time at camp and now you're back here in big church. All the people around you are just wrinklier high school students. (laughs) That's all they are. And a little grumpier, all right, with a few more bills. But I mean, that's all we are, right? We just grew up and we think deep down, I could do youth camp, but probably not the mud pit because I have insurance. You know, that... Whatever. What I'm saying is, students, this church is your church. Uh, Help uh, make us cool again. (laughs) So, if you have a Bible, we're in Titus uh, chapter 2, and we're going to continue on the thought. If you were here last weekend, Pastor Martin and Pastor Seth at their respective campuses uh, were preaching about uh, how we should live the gospel, because that was the theme of the first part of chapter 2. Uh, Paul reminds Titus and us that we should preach what accords with sound doctrine. And, and not only preach it, but the older men should teach it to the younger men. And the older women in the faith should teach it to the younger women. That's what was happening at Camp 23. And then he goes on to say, he finishes it in verse 10 by saying, Whatever you do in everything that we do, church... What we say, how we work, how we interact online, how we interact on vacation, wherever we do, everything that we do may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Essentially, the first part of chapter two says that everything in our lives as we live out the gospel should decorate the gospel, should make it more appealing to the world, not less appealing, 
That's why we want to be a church that's known for what we're for, not for what we're against. The world knows what we're against. We've been harping on it for a while. Let's make it beautiful. Let's adorn the gospel. Let's be a people that shows up with with those that don't know Christ with actually having a smile on our face. How do you come to church to worship? Boom, struggle is the glory. It's Michigan in summer. It'll snow next week. (laughs) Smile, right? Whatever you do, let's adorn the gospel, the doctrine of God. And so as we come to verses 11, 12, 13, and 14, we'll just cover four verses in our study today. Paul's going to give us the why. Why? Why teach sound doctrine? Why do what we do? Why spend time having the youngers train or the olders train the youngers? Why, why should we adorn the gospel? And so if you have a Bible, like I said, we'll look at chapter 2, verse 11, and we'll take it slow. Um, and there's one theme. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is God's word. And this is the why. And it's right there in verse 11, and it's one word, and the word is grace. Now, I got to warn you, I am tan, rested, and ready, and I am fired up because we're talking about grace first Sunday back. He says, why do we do anything that we do? Because the grace of God has appeared. How does the grace of God appear? The grace of God appeared in Jesus Christ, God in flesh, He encapsulated love. He encapsulated mercy. One day he'll encapsulate justice, but he comes full of grace to show us how to live, to show us how to love, to show us how to die, and to show us how to live again. Why do we do what we do? Grace. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. And just in case you're wondering, you know, if I want to make it clear, he's talking about Jesus. That God decided at that time, at that place, now is the fullness of time for me to send my son, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus the Christ, he has appeared. And this is a big deal as grace being the why. Listen to me, church. Grace is the most powerful force in the universe for transformation. Grace is the most powerful force in the universe for transformation. Do you understand what I'm talking about when I say grace? Scholastically, we say, well, grace is undeserved favor. In a fight club or on this uh, stage as we're preaching, I I always try to kind of put it in context of what grace is and, and we compare it with justice and mercy. Justice is when you get what you deserve. You work an eight-hour day, you get an eight-hour wage, depending on your work, the quality of your work, and the type of job that you have. 
At the end of the day, when you get a paycheck or the end of the month for all of the, the hours that you've put in, I've put in, you know, 40 hour work weeks, four weeks, I should be paid. When you get that check, that's not grace. That's justice. That's what you deserve. You work hard, you get paid. Do we believe that? Wake up, America. Yeah, okay. Some of us need to move out of our parents' basements and figure that out. <laughs> Put the controller down, bro. Get a job or join the army, join the service. That's what we did. It's America. But that's justice. You work hard, you get a paycheck. The problem is we come to you know, God or we come to society and we demand justice. But if we're honest with ourselves, we don't deserve anything. What the Bible teaches is that we're all sinful and what we deserve is punishment. At least I do. At least I do. But that's justice. Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. Mercy is what I hope and pray for when the state trooper's walking up to my window. And I know daggone well how fast I was going. I had no idea. Lie. Right? Mercy is when you don't get what you deserve. And that's, you know, when, when God in Christ came to take my place of suffering and punishment and condemnation, absorbing the wrath of God, that was his mercy. But grace is something altogether different. Grace is unmerited favor or undeserved favor. That's what grace is. And so the why of everything is grace. The why of everything is grace. Maybe it's because I'm old. And you know, I just realized this. I was, I was staring at the beach and I, I don't know, you can have your vacation. I have my vacation, whatever. I just like to be in one place and stare at a beach. And if a dolphin shows great, if a seven foot hammerhead shows up even better, right? Keeps it exciting. But there's coffee, there's beach, ocean. I love it. The ocean has no memory. It's a great place to thaw out and veg for me. All right. And some of you want to go, 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 go. And we got to see this. And we got to see this. We got to see this. That's not vacation for me. You wear me out. I just want to go and do that, right? One of the things I realize is I'm getting older and older. The stories and the examples are changing. And the more I realize, the older I get, my imperfections, my inability to change me, the way that I failed, and how undeserving I am. Does anyone else notice that? I'm less concerned about justice. I'm more grateful for mercy and I'm grateful for grace. And I can't get over the fact that God loves me because I know me. You only see the best version of me, most of you. We only show one another the best version of ourselves. I came across this quote from one of my favorite books, The Ragamuffin Gospel from Brennan Manning. And he says this, he says, God has a single relentless stance towards us. He loves us. He is the only God man has ever heard of who loves sinners. Think about that. Think of all the other religions we create. In Christianity, he is the only God man has ever heard of that man could ever conceive where God loves the sinner. Can't get over that. You know what that is? That's grace. That's undeserved favor. That's unmerited favor. 
Now, if that's too deep for you, I'll give you another picture of grace. Here's another picture of grace. On vacation, a two-year-old granddaughter that loves pop-pop, and more than that, loves eating banana pudding ice cream with pop-pop every night. And won't go to sleep without it. Demanding it. You know what that is? Whew, that's grace. I told you, stories are getting older. And when that little copper tone baby is sitting across from me and I made a bowl for her and I made a bowl for me. By the way, it's not banana pudding ice cream. If you put the G on the pudding, you haven't had it. You don't even know. But when you put that banana pudding, bluebell ice cream in your mouth, you'll say pudding. It's got the little vanilla wafers in there. And the only one in the whole house that would eat it is me and her. And I'd make a bowl for her and a bowl for me. She's got a spoon. I got a spoon. And she'd say, pop, pop, help me. Which means I got to make a little scoop, get it ready for her. And I get a little scoop for me. And then one bite at a time. And after every bite, we have to ting spoons. Ting. That's a 30-minute ice cream fest. No one else is invited to. You know what that is? I, I, I might, it's, that's grace. I don't, I don't deserve that. Those little moments. Do you have those moments? Do you know what else grace is? I was thinking about this during the service last night. And in Manistee, you probably can't see it, but our worship band today, I mean, we got a full band. I, we got awesome bands at both locations. And, 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 but just the picture today, and I don't want to give up any, anybody's stories, but on this side of our stage, there's a handsome young man playing lead guitar, and he's bringing it. And if you knew his story, you would know the only reason that he's here on a weekend when he's a very busy man with a very important job, playing the guitar, serving for us because of God's grace. And one of his best friends in high school is on the other end of the stage, and he brought that awesome bass rift in that last song so you could feel it. That was grace to you, by the way, because we believe in bass, because he's got a pedal called all of it, you know? And he was bringing it. So on one side, we got Cody. And they were like really good buds in high school. On the other side, we got Marcus. And they're bookending all the stories of all the jacked up people in our band. And I'm not ripping on anybody because it's the same with you. Brian Devery said, eyes is straight crazy, right? Why are we here? Because of grace. Because God loves sinners and he changes lives. It's, grace is the most powerful transformational force in the universe. When we receive forgiveness from God, that which we don't deserve, grace is what will turn liars into truth tellers. It turns selfish people into generous givers. It turns self-centered and focused people into others-centered people. It turns addicts and sets them free because we meet grace, grace with skin on, who's Jesus himself, and we receive what we don't deserve. So back to the study. Well, I went on a rant there. I feel good about that, though. Verse 11, it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. So we're talking about grace, and in these four verses, there's actually three levels or three different 
functions of grace or three different offices of grace. And, and it's not a formula and you really can't separate them out. But these are the three ways and the three functions and the three offices. Because in church, sometimes we're guilty of just saying, oh, well, it's all the grace of God. And it somehow becomes like a catchphrase or a catch-all phrase, like a junk drawer about God. Well, it's grace. It's all grace. You know, well, what do we really mean? Well, Paul lays it out. In this first sentence, in verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Most of us are familiar with this part of grace. It's what we call saving grace. Saving grace. And this is what saves us from our sin. The moment you receive Christ and believe in him by faith, it says in Ephesians chapter two, verses eight and nine, for by grace, we are saved through faith. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, Right? And so we repeat that all the time to remind people it's not how good you are. It's not how much you clean yourself up. It's simply receiving Christ by faith. And then as grace appears in your life, you're transformed. You go from dead to life. Before you were a child of hell, now you're a child of heaven. Uh, uh, before uh, you're dead in your sin and now you're alive in Christ. It just, it happens like this. This is saving grace. You guys know what I'm talking about? which by the way, we don't ever want to rush past this. If you don't know Christ, you can receive Christ today. You can experience saving grace simply by asking him into your life, by receiving him into your life and saying, I'm going to trust what Jesus did on the cross for my sin. That is saving grace, the redemption that he offers. But there's more than just a saving. It's powerful in and of itself, but grace has a way of working into every area of my life. There's a lot of us that stop at saving grace. In fact, I, I had two different conversations this week, uh, and I don't want to go into too many details, but they were young men uh, that, that maybe, like for one, I was a coach, one, I was more of a friend, but what I found out is in the last decade, since I've lost track of them, both of them have experienced God's saving grace. And I, I would have never believed it. They were like, oh yeah, I can't believe I just bumped into you. I was actually thinking about coming to church this week. Really? I thought you hated church. No, as a matter of fact, I, I mean, they didn't say these exact words, but it was, it was they've, oh yeah, I got baptized. I received saving grace. Okay, cool. Where are you now? Never been to church, never made a move after that. And that's the experience of many of us. Experience one part of God's grace, but not the fullness of God's grace. So there's saving grace, but there's more than just that. Look at verse 12, if you still are, are following along. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Training us. So apparently grace saves us, but somehow grace also trains us. That's the grammar of the sentence. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, comma, training us. Who's doing the training? The grace that has appeared. Jesus. And so there's saving grace. There's also training grace. If you've really experienced the grace of God and you've realized the depth of your own sin and how much you can't save yourself, you can't fix you, that you only need blanket forgiveness from a loving God, one that we can hardly conceive of, that saving grace also works itself in and becomes training grace. Training grace. Anyone ever heard of that before? I never had <laughs> until I was studying Titus. Thanks, Titus, or Paul, for teaching Titus and teaching us. 
So saving grace, it's also training grace. And what does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, or some translations say worldly desires, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what training grace does. Translate that. What is saving grace? Saving grace teaches me to say no to sin and yes to God. To say no to sin and yes to God. Most of us know what sin is. In fact, even us as preachers, we talk about this. We don't, rarely do we have to define sin. Most of us know what sin is. I mean, there's some cases, oh, I didn't know that was a sin. I want to stop doing that. But the moment you experience God's saving grace, if you're like, oh, I'm glad I'm saved. I just need to get back to some sinning. I'm not sure you met saving grace, right? Most of us know that the saving grace, why would I want to return to that? That's the beginning of the training grace. That's the beginning of the training grace. When it says I renounce sin, it doesn't mean that I perfectly walk away from it. Now, I've heard testimonies even of people in this church. Uh, you know, I had all this and this and they listed all their sins in my life. And then I walked an aisle and got on the knee and prayed to, and, you know, prayed to Jesus and I got saved and I felt the Holy Spirit in my life and I never had a desire to do X again. That sometimes happens for some, in some cases, for some things. But you'll notice is that there's a whole nother junk drawer of sin that you get to work on. Maybe God took some of the easy ones out because I know for me, 53 years old, I still struggle with sin. I'm still being trained. I'm saved, but I'm still being trained. Anyone else out there with me? Am I the only sinner here today? By the way, only sinners are welcome here because if you don't sin, there's other churches for you to go to to ruin, please. Okay, just sorry, sorry. We're not encouraging that, but I'm saying we're all under training. It teaches us to say no to sin and yes to God. The Bible teaches that while we're in this body, it calls it the flesh, we're going to struggle. And this is why we need the saving grace to become training grace. And it's gentle and it's patient. It convicts, it teaches, it guides, it also empowers. It gives us power to say no to sin and yes to God. It says in uh, Galatians chapter five uh, that, that, that when we become a Christian, uh, we're given gifts or what's called fruits of the Holy Spirit. And the fruits of the Holy Spirit that God trains us in are love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, if you're singing the song, Right? And, and, and if you'll notice, he talked about that, that we're to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Now, don't be mistaken. Just because it says self-control, it doesn't mean that this training grace is something that you do. It's still something that God does. But I participate with God. So the saving grace, that's all God, but I participate there too. I have to receive it. Jesus just didn't die so that everybody can go to heaven. Everybody can go to heaven, but they must receive. That's how we participate. Well, with the training grace, it's the same way. It's his power. It's his fruit of his spirit, which is self-control, but I participate with that. I participate with that. 
And so, you know, sometimes that looks like a discipline. There's a brand new discipline in my life. That's why we tell people that, you know, hey, when you receive Christ, the first thing you probably need to do is get a Bible. Second thing you probably need to do is get a church. And third thing you need to do is get in the Bible and get in the church. Not just at Christmas and not just at Easter. You need it all the time because now we're in the school of training with that grace. Now, again, I don't fix myself, but as I suit up and as I show up, God's grace works its way in me so I can renounce sin and worldly passions. See how that works? It's not me. There's plenty of people think that they can somehow discipline themselves out of sin. No, it's the program. It's the program. If you've ever uh, heard anything about Alcoholics Anonymous or ever talked to someone who's been through that program, and I know many of us, many of you have, it always starts like this. Oh, you want to kick alcohol? Well, you need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I don't want to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I want to make my own program. Well, have fun getting drunk again. Because if you want to get sober using AA, it starts out with 90 meetings in 90 days. Not because you're going to fix you, but that discipline, that self-control, that's how the program works its way into you. And then maybe you don't have to go to a meeting every day for the next 90 days. It's the same thing with church. It's the same thing with church. This training grace is a gift. It's a fruit of the spirit that God works in us. In Romans chapter six, it says that this training grace teaches me not to present the members of my body to sin, but instead to present the members of my body to God. That's a process. It's training grace. In Romans 12, it says that we're to offer ourselves as living sacrifices to God. Now, why would we do that? What's a living sacrifice? Well, God set his son to die for me a real death on a real cross with real pain and blood and gnashing of teeth. The least I can do is offer all of me in return. It's a good deal. So he says in Romans 12, one and two, offer yourselves living sacrifices, holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's training grace. So it's saving grace, it's training grace, but it's also compelling grace. It's compelling grace. Back to our study here, after he says, renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, then it says, waiting for our blessed hope. Waiting for our blessed hope. What's our blessed hope? And by the way, this is the only place in all of scripture it calls this the blessed hope. It says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What is he saying? Jesus is coming back. Why do you want to be trained? Why do you want to be transformed? Why do you care about any of this? Because he's coming back. The scripture says to judge the living and the dead. This is the one who saved you. This is the one who trains you. This is the one that says, ah, the finish line is coming and I am the finish line. I told you I'm fired up. Are you? 
We said it before in the last few weeks. Does the return of Christ, the reality of the return of Christ, does that freak you out? You may not be saved. I don't know. You tell me. Well, I got saved years ago, allegedly. Because if you know the saving grace of God, if you've been in the school with the training grace of God, the second coming compels you. I say, bring it. Whew, that would be cool to be alive when he comes back. Fearful, yes. Yes, fearful. But it says, our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He pulls it all back together. Why do we do these good works that we're called to do? Why do we train in sound doctrine? Why do we attend church on a perfectly good, sunny Michigan, Northwest Michigan day? We're, we're losing the best part of the day. Ladies, the peak tanning hours are coming. What are you doing? Why? Because he's coming back. His grace that saved me is also the compelling grace. That's why I want to worship him. That's why I want to serve him. Why do we give? Why do we give our tithes and offerings even when we're on vacation? Why? Because of the compelling grace that this is God's church. This is God's will for us. These are my meager little offerings. I'm contributing. I'm showing God that I'm still in the game. That's why we do what we do. Why do we serve? Why do grown adults go up to Gaylord, Michigan to take a week off of their job, losing vacation time and or pay to serve our students? It's the compelling grace of Jesus Christ. And some of us can't be moved anywhere but the pew on a Sunday morning because we're not compelled by that yet. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to fire you up. That's my job. Light a fire right underneath. Saving grace is training grace. It's compelling grace. Grace. It's not just a song that we sing that makes us feel like winsome and, and, and you know, uh, I don't know the word I'm looking for. I got to remind you again. God has a single relentless stance towards you. He loves you. He is the only God that you have ever heard of who loves sinners, who loves sinners. This compelling grace, this blessed hope means all of us keep a spiritual eye toward the sky. This compelling grace changes my have to to want to. Have to is the self-control. It's the discipline. And, And by the way, that's not bad. Sometimes, especially first starting out, we need the discipline. We need the have to. You just do it because you're supposed to. You just do it because you need to get in the habit. You just do it until something magical happens. But somewhere along the way, the have to becomes a want to. The discipline becomes a motivation, right? If you have to get up earlier for work and you're just like, But in the middle of November, men who grumble about getting up for work will get up at 2 a.m. to chase the white-tailed deer through the forest. Woo! Right? Your have to became want to. I need to kill. This is the grace of God. Our have to becomes 
the want to, it's the why. Okay, so how do we do it? How do we do it? Let's bring it home. How do we do or how do we see God's grace released in us? How do we see God's grace released in in us? For me, it's real simple. If this really is a blessed hope, then the how-to is do not love the world and keep your eye on the prize. In the middle of summer in Northwest Michigan, tabernacle, do not love the world and keep your eye on the prize. Dads in midlife crisis, do not love the world. Keep your eye on the prize. Moms who are struggling to hold it together and feeling like all they are is a chauffeur and a grocery getter, do not love the world and keep your eye on the prize. That's what the Bible teaches. What do I mean by do not love the world? I didn't say don't love people. I didn't say don't love banana pudding moments with your granddaughter. But loving the world means you live for those instead of receiving them as graces for what they are. They're little glimpses of heaven. We can't stay there. Opening day comes once a year. We don't stay there. We don't live for it. It's just, it's just a little glimpse of the glory that will be revealed. It's a little glimpse. It's a good thing. In 1 John chapter 2, the apostle says, do not love the world or anything in the world. He who loves the world is not worthy of the love of the Father. In fact, he says, the love of the Father is not in him. And so what he's presenting is, which do you love more? God and his son, Jesus Christ, or the world? And when I say the world, I'm talking about all the world has to offer. The success, the influence, the power, the sex, the relationships, the, those little moments. If you hang on to those moments, you're loving the world more than you're loving God. If church is getting in the way of your life, you love the world more than you love God. And so he says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If you love the world more than you love the Father, the love of the Father is not in you. Jesus said, whoever would follow me must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow. In fact, I found this little story, or this little, actually it's just a verse. If you turn back one page into 2 Timothy, as in many of Paul's letters, he'll give these little personal things at the end of his letters, these little things, and we get little clues about what's going on in his life. And in 2 Timothy, which was one of his last letters, he wrote it from prison. He's on death row. He's about to die. And now remember, Paul has experienced the saving grace of God on the road to Damascus. Remember, he was a church hater, a Jesus hater. He was going after disciples. He was a persecutor. And then shining light on the Damascus road, his life has changed. He experienced saving grace. For the next years, several years, Ananias, men like Barnabas, took him aside and the training grace of God took effect. Hey, you used to be a Pharisee, a rule follower, a fake, a persecutor. Now we have to train you in the gospel. So he experienced saving grace. He experienced training grace and he was preaching the compelling grace. And so now at the end of his life, after everywhere he went, he started either a riot or a revival He's been beaten, he's been tortured, he's been shipwrecked, snake bit, stoned, left for dead. 
Now he's in prison, death row. This is what he says, verse six. By the way, how hard was your week? Just struggling for the Lord, aren't you? Here in North America, yeah. With your retirement plan and your boss at your job, wow, struggles the glory, right? Sorry, had to just remind you. Here's Paul, verse six. He says, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. And the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness. He knows my life's just been poured out like a drink offering right on the ground. Now, this is the key. Look at this. This is why I tell you to bring your Bible. Yo, look at verse nine. It says, do your best to come to me soon. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I had to do a little study on Demas. He was one of the you know, crew that Paul rolled with. He was one of the crew starting these riots and revivals. He'd been with Paul when Paul was first imprisoned in Rome. But now, and this is Holy Spirit-inspired words, What if the only thing it said about you in Scripture for Demas in love with this present world has deserted me? Go on to Thessalonica. Do not love the world. It'll cause you to desert, to desert your church, to desert the fellowship, to desert the faith, to desert your commitments, to desert your spouse, your children, your sobriety. Do not love the world and keep your eye on the prize. Where's that come from? You keep going backwards. First Corinthians. Chapter 9, we covered this in one of our last long series. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? I'm in verse 24 of 1 Corinthians 9, sorry. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. There's that word again. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. Remember in the Greek games, they had the little, you got, a, you got leaves. You're the state champion in the 100 meters. You get leaves. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You know why he says that? To remind you that everything in this world is going to pass away your memories, your vacation, your collection, your inheritance, your wealth, you're going to pass it on. It's gone. Short of Jesus coming back, your destiny, my destiny is dust and ashes. Perishable. So, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air but I discipline my body and I keep it under control lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. 
Why would Paul be worried about being disqualified? He wrote most of the New Testament. Because even though I've experienced saving grace, and even though I've been trained in grace, sometimes I take my eye off the prize. How many grumpy pants older Christians have you met? A lot of them. And I'm grateful for the ones who've stuck it out with us. And I'm grateful for the ones like John and Barb Williams, who are the happiest 50-year married people, 70-plus years, outworks everyone on staff, people that I know. And if you're one of those older people that have ever been rebuked by John Williams, you're welcome. Because he's got his eye on the prize. I want to be like that. I want to be like that. And it's harder to be like that. I threw up my back brushing my teeth. (laughs) Or something. Who knows? I think I've said enough. Do not love the world. Let's keep our eye on the prize, Tab. Keep our eye on the prize. You know why we're going to Cadillac? Cadillac's not the prize. Jesus on a white horse coming back in the eastern sky. That's the prize. And the fight's not over. The fight for souls... The fight for lives is not over till he comes back. While there's breath in your lungs. While you have something to give. So, bands, if you'll come, if you'll bow your heads with me. Man, I should probably not go on vacation anymore. <laughs> We're over time, but that's okay. What is God saying to you and, and, and what does he want you to do about it? If you're not sure, would you just ask him? If you've not received his saving grace, you can do it today. If you've been ignoring his training grace and stayed out of the the crosshairs of of what he can do in your life, what does self-control look like so that you can allow that grace to work? Have you taken your eye off the compelling grace of the end of all things? His glorious return, the blessed hope. God, I thank you for your unmerited favor that you've shown to us at the Buckley campus, the unmerited favor you've shown at the Manistee campus, the unmerited favor that you're going to show to people at our Cadillac campus, in old people's lives and in young people's lives, the unmerited favor that students experienced at camp. Would you help us not to be deserters because we got distracted by love for the world. But instead, God, would you help all of us to keep our eye on the prize, on the finish line, to work for the reward that lasts. God, you're the best. Jesus, we worship you and we're so grateful for you. All of this is for your glory and not ours. And it's in your name that we pray. And if you agree, say amen.